please stand to honor God as we read from Lamentations chapter 3. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christ Community family. How are we all doing this morning? Good. All right. Well, it definitely is a thankful a morning to be thankful for the beautiful trio, uh, for the commotion kids, I think, who teach us to smile a little bit while we worship. I think I noticed uh, I don't as much when they're here, and then I realize that I smile a lot more when they're here. So thankful for that. And I'm thankful for you guys. Um, I think it's a great morning to just recognize, you know, as your Leewood uh, resident pastor, pastoral resident, um, I wouldn't be here without you all. Uh, with your generosity, your hospitality, and so I am eternally grateful. It's a ton of work, so thanks for that also, Um, but truly, uh, truly very thankful for you guys. Well, this morning as we approach our text, I want to start with a little group participation. Can we do that? Uh, A little, um, a few case studies I have for you that I'd love to get your take on. So, So let's try it out here together, all right? All right, so first one. And you may, this may have happened this morning, all right? But imagine that you're in a car, behind another car, at a stoplight. The light turns green, but the car in front of you doesn't move. All right? How long does it take before you lay on your horn? A second? If even that? <laughs> you know, your kids are here this morning. We actually invited them into service to keep you honest, all right? So as we go through, keep that in mind. All right, here's the next one. How about when you open a web page on the internet, but the page is slow to load? How long before you bail? A second, right? You know, about 40% of the people that use the internet, it's about three seconds. Okay, here's the last one. This one gets me. You finally finished your shopping at Target, and now you have to choose which line to get into, right? And, and even more important to that, when do you switch lines? Because I don't care which one I get into, the other one is always faster. You see, we are an impatient people, aren't we? And if you're like me, you'll do just about anything to avoid even the smallest ounce of waiting. You might subscribe to a two-day delivery service, so you don't have to wait any longer than is necessary. Or others of us, we pull out our phone if there's any sense in a lag time. In 2012, the New York Times published a story entitled, Why Waiting in Line is Torture. And it is, isn't it? The author describes waiting as the drudgery of unoccupied time. The author claims that this drudgery has led to a $5.5 billion industry of impulse buys. Can you imagine that? $5.5 billion worth of chapstick, chewing gum, York peppermint patties, you know, tabloids about celebrities you really don't care anything about, $5.5 billion, all because we would rather spend money 
than experience the drudgery of unoccupied time. Waiting is the worst. And as the philosopher and our friend Tom Petty always said, (laughs) the waiting is the hardest part. But it's an essential part of the human experience. It is not something we can escape. We all wait for small things, for major things. In this life, we all wait. So as we come to the end of our eight-week journey with Jeremiah, exploring life, a task too big for us, we'll be exploring this concept of waiting and asking the question, how do we wait well? Because sometimes the biggest task is the wait. And this is the right question to be asking of Jeremiah. He's something of an expert on the subject. His life is defined by waiting. You see, We've talked about this over the last few weeks, but Jeremiah came preaching a message that was hard to hear and even more difficult to proclaim. He proclaimed that destruction was coming because of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, but it didn't happen right away, did it? Now, just like Noah waiting on the flood, Jeremiah waited and he waited to see if what God told him would actually come to pass. Jeremiah waited through pain, through shame, through silence and abandonment. And then once destruction came, he waited some more. He was left waiting again, waiting for Israel to be brought back to the land and waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. You see, Jeremiah knows waiting and waiting is the worst. So today we come to this small book of Lamentations to learn from Jeremiah's waiting and understand how we can wait well today how we can make sure that our waiting isn't wasted. See, scholars argue that these five chapters of Lamentations were written by the prophet Jeremiah after the Babylonians had conquered the city, after the Babylonians had carted off all the people to Israel in exile. And these five chapters, they're really five poems expressing the anguish of all that has happened and is happening. If Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, then Lamentations are his tears the anguish of a life left waiting. To get a sense of Jeremiah's disposition, let's pick up reading together Lamentations 3, 16 through 18, the verses just prior to what we read together a moment ago. The the poet says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah has no peace, no happiness, no hope, for they are all lost to him. The Dutch artist Rembrandt, he famously depicted this event of Jeremiah's waiting in sorrow in a painting called Jeremiah, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me have a picture of it here. You you can almost hear what he's thinking, right? You see, we can talk about what waiting feels like, but this is what it looks like, doesn't it? Isolated, sad, dejected. You want to ask what next, but that's just it. There is no next. There is no peace, no happiness, no hope, for it all has gone. Have you ever been in a place of waiting like this? I mean, maybe it's not while you're waiting in traffic. 
But what about as you wait for that job that your family desperately needs? Or waiting for a diagnosis or a cure? Waiting for a wayward child that you have desperately prayed for? Or waiting to find a spouse that you desperately desire? And when you wait for the big things in life, do you hear yourself saying the similar words to Jeremiah that we just read? My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. So we come to Jeremiah asking, how do we wait well? It's a universal experience and we desperately need guidance. So let's pick up again with Jeremiah in verse 19. He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continuously remembers it and is bowed down within me. What is Jeremiah doing? Jeremiah, he's listening to his soul and he's bringing it before God. He says, Lord, I pray that you remember my plight because I can't get it out of my mind. It continually bombards me day after day. Have you ever replayed a situation over and over and over in your mind? When I think of this, it reminds me of a lighter topic. Um, it reminds me of one of my daughter's toys. And one of my daughter, Avery, one that her grandparents got her. Um, and I don't know what it is about grandparents, but they love buying gifts that make annoying songs. <laughs> and this one, this one is still, it's ingrained in my brain after her first year. You know, it goes, welcome to our learning farm. We have much to show you, shapes and colors, music too. There's so much to do. You know, I had to start bringing motions into it just to get myself through it because it never ends. It never ends. And you know, a kid's song is enough to drive someone crazy. But what about the painful situations in life? A situation where the very memory of it makes you sick to your stomach. And Jeremiah is saying that this is what he can't get out of his head. And it takes him to the point of despair. But this I call to mind as Jeremiah continues in verse 21. Even as he confesses his heartache before God, this I call to mind and therefore... I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is likely one of the most famous passages in Lamentations. In fact, the Hebrew language of this, of this calling to mind, it's literally that of the heart. It says, this I return to my heart and therefore I have hope. This love of God, his never-ending mercies, this I constantly bring back to my heart. You see, Jeremiah is speaking to his heart. And it's a profound turning point in this chapter. Essentially, Jeremiah, he's looking back. He's looking back on his situation, yes, but he's also looking back on the Lord's faithfulness. And as we think about waiting this morning, this is our first lesson on waiting well. In a life of waiting, we look back. 
We look back. While we're waiting for that phone to ring or that check to come in or just waiting for our family to be normal for once, we look back. And in looking back, we can see more clearly. Because in the waiting, we're prone to tunnel vision, are we not? Where we see only one thing, and it's the pain, it's the drudgery of unoccupied time, it's unfulfilled expectations. But looking back, seeing more clearly, we find this involves at least two things that we see in Jeremiah's own life. It involves listening to our soul, of course, and it involves speaking to our heart. And we need both. When we only listen to our souls, when we only continue to wallow in our pain, we don't wait well. We can't see what God is doing. We have tunnel vision. But of course, we do need to confront our pain. We must process life circumstances. Otherwise, we, we end up with some sort of a look on the bright side theology, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. You confess your pain to a friend, and how do they respond? They say, well, at least you got your health which is helpful for no one. (laughs) Jeremiah does not try to diminish the situation with something like it isn't that bad. No, he listens to his soul and he brings it before God. He says, it is this bad. And yet I am choosing to reflect on who God is and what God has done. It is a profound sense of protest against our own human heart. The picture is that of someone really talking to themselves, having a debate with themselves. And so I ask, have you ever talked to yourself? And if you did, what did you say? (laughs) Because this is what crazy people do, right? I mean, when you and I think about someone talking to themselves, we think of Smeagol from Lord of the Rings, right? Because you guys know I will use any chance I can to bring up a Lord of the Rings reference. All right, take it down before we scare the kids. Thanks. Look, this is what I think of, because here's the thing. If you're silent long enough, if you wait long enough, you will end up talking to yourself. And that can make all the difference. Of course, for Smeagol, it led to his corruption, didn't it? But that's because what also matters is what you say to yourself when you talk to yourself. So have you ever talked to yourself? And if you did, what did you say? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor and theologian of the early 20th century, knew a little bit about this. And in 1965, he famously wrote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who he is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. You see, nothing changes in Jeremiah's circumstances. He's still hoping for a day that doesn't come in his lifetime. But when he speaks to himself about God, Looking back on who God is, on what God has done, it changes his entire outlook. So how can we be a people who cultivate a life of looking back in the waiting? Let me suggest just a couple practices. First, share your story. I think in the old days we called this a testimony, did we not? 
But it's one of the best ways of listening to our souls and of speaking to our hearts. It's through sharing it with, to someone else. The good and the bad, acknowledging the pain and the joy, declaring this is who I am, broken in all, and yet this is who God is, who loves me and shows me mercies each and every day. This sharing might be with a friend or a counselor, but you know, maybe you're not up for sharing with someone else. Maybe it means writing in a journal. Or for me, it means taking a walk through the woods while I talk to myself and no one can see. (laughs) So share your story as a way of looking back on your life and to see the way that the Lord is working. Second, practice thanksgiving. Now, I know that we are all recovering from our tryptophan comas, but thanksgiving is not something that we just practice once a year, but it is a mindset we continually cultivate. Because this is what we sing, is it not? Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. This hymn of Thomas Chisholm's is based off of Lamentations 3, the very text we're reading today. And I think of it like a protest to my own heart a way of practicing thanksgiving. Because I don't always feel thankful. Do you? But each morning I wake up to a new day, to new mercies, and give thanks to a God whose faithful love never abandons. It doesn't change our circumstances. We may be waiting and waiting, but it does change our perspective. It allows us to look back to focus on who God is and what he has done. It allows us not to lose ourselves in misery or miss out on God's good gifts. I know this isn't easy. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things we can do. And I'm not saying that we should devalue our pain or our circumstances, but we also can't miss out on God's good gifts. The poet's waiting. It offers him a chance to view what he doesn't have, to change his view from what he doesn't have to what he does have, how God has provided and blessed. The waiting then, rather than a time to sit and to sulk, allows for a chance to slow down and to savor each and every moment. Thomas Burton, an early 20th century monk, says it like this. Another long quote. But stick with me, I love this quote. To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is grace, for it brings with us immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awakening to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. And that's what makes all the difference. One of our friends here at church has a great method for practicing Thanksgiving. She has a jar in her house that she fills with little slips of paper, just recording how God's been at work, his daily mercies. And when she comes to a rough patch in life, as we all do, a time of waiting, she can pull these out as a way to practice Thanksgiving as a way to reminding her heart of who God is, what he's done, his mercies every day. 
It's a profound way to practice thanksgiving. So looking back is this first lesson that Jeremiah teaches us. And the second we find in verses 24 through 26, if you'd look there with me. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. See, the poet exclaims that this renewed hope from the fa- is, comes from the fact that the Lord is his portion. The Lord would be his sustenance in difficult times, that the Lord would be his endurance over the long haul. Jeremiah claims that the Lord is his portion. But portion is kind of an odd word for us, is it not? Except, of course, during this time, after we eat a lot of turkey and we think, you know, in the future, I need to exercise portion control. But that's about the only time that we use it. So what does Jeremiah mean when he says, the Lord is my portion? Of course, portion simply means a part or an allotment. And in the language of the Old Testament, portion refers to one's land, one's share in the family inheritance. It was the hope of one's future. But it could also refer to one's daily ration of food, the food that you would look forward to each day to keep you going. And both of these are so significant because it is a direct reversal of what we've already read in verses 18 and 19. If you remember verse 18, the poet says, my endurance, or literally my future, has perished. So has my hope in the Lord. And he clarifies what he means by this future. He says, he then clarifies in verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering. In other words, remember that I'm homeless. Remember, I've been taking from the land of my hope, the land of my family, the land that is my inheritance. And then he says, and he asked the Lord to remember the wormwood and the gall. Remember the poison that I've had to eat. My daily ration is no longer food. It's been switched for poison. You see, portion, the future inheritance of land, the daily meal, it's essentially the energy and the motivation to keep going. It's what you look forward to. Because when those are gone, so is hope. But in verse 24, the poet proclaims that he is now looking ahead to the Lord as his motivation and his sustenance, his portion, how he keeps going. And this is the second lesson we learn from Jeremiah. In a life of waiting, we look ahead. We look ahead. And I'm sure you've experienced this, but waiting has this uncanny ability to reveal our true, our true motivations in life. Have you ever uh, gone shopping on that Friday after Thanksgiving, which is now on Thanksgiving, you know? After you go and you pick up your stuff and you get in line, uh, you know, that serpentine line that weaves its way through the cosmetics department, and you're waiting there, and after about five minutes, you know, you look down at the stuff you have in your hands, and then you look back at the line, and you move a little bit, and you look back at the stuff in your hands, and you look back at the line. And in your mind, you're evaluating, aren't you? You're thinking ahead. You're, like, you're thinking, okay, is, is this stuff in my hands, and the 50 or so cents I get for it cheaper today, is, is that worth this 30-minute wait? You're evaluating. You're looking ahead. You're asking yourself if it's worth it. And you're asking yourself, what keeps you going? And we ask ourselves this morning, what keeps us going? Am I taking in, what am I taking in or looking towards that keeps me going in the waiting? 
Am I distracting my mind with Netflix so I don't have to think? Am I thinking about the next trip or vacation to get me through the current time? But even more than that, in our waiting, oftentimes what we're waiting for becomes our end goal. We can make our expectations our hope. And it's not that they're bad things, it's just they're not our portion. So what keeps you going? Is it the hope of the right job in the right city and making a lot of money? Is it the hope of a future spouse before a certain age? Is it the hope of getting in the right school? Because what if we're kept waiting? Because that's what happened to Jeremiah. In that case, you're only left with a constant state of anxiety. Because you see, none of this can suffice. None of it can be our portion. And thankfully, we have a God who makes himself known to us in the waiting. Who doesn't leave us alone to wait, but draws near. He doesn't only walk with us through the difficult times, but sometimes he even sits right beside us in the waiting. So what keeps you going? Because the truth is, many of us don't experience the Lord as our portion because we aren't seeking the Lord to be our portion. Look at what the poet says in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Waiting and seeking. Are you seeking the Lord as your portion? God wants to sustain us in the waiting, but we have to have eyes that see his mercies every day. Hearts that know his unfailing love. We've got to have ears that hear his call. Well, we've been asking, how do we wait well? We found that to wait well, we look back and we look ahead. We're calling God's faithfulness, seeking the Lord as our portion. But Jeremiah has one last thing to say to us this morning about waiting. And we find that in Lamentations 3, 26 through 27. If you would turn there. Jeremiah says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The last lesson we learn from Lamentations is that a life of waiting is good. Can you believe that? Do you believe that? How can this be? Because, I mean, waiting is the worst. That's clearly true. But it's not wasted. Waiting is the worst, but it is not wasted. Jeremiah writes, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And isn't it a good thing that we are a people who understand the yoke, right? Amen? Tom, we're supposed to have a hearty amen at this point, right? If you're not familiar about the yoke, uh, just chat with me about the giant one we have hanging in our lobby. I'd love to talk some more about it. Because the yoke for us, the way we understand it is the yoke is a training metaphor. The poet is saying it's good for an adult to bear the yoke of waiting while young so that when older they'll be wise. You see, waiting is the crucible of formation. It is producing something in us. And it's good. We've already seen what some of those things are, right? Perseverance, new priorities, self-understanding, patience, empathy, gratitude. In the short term, waiting is the worst, but in the long run, it is not wasted. Jeremiah says it is good to wait because ultimately, waiting yields hope. Your waiting isn't wasted because it's producing hope. 
as we wait for God to come through, Jeremiah says that our capacity for hope increases. We become the kinds of people who are anchored in who God is, what God has done, and are confident in what God has promised. Jeremiah waited and waited. And it might seem to us like God never came through for him. You see, he waited for a day that never came. And we've mentioned Jeremiah's end before. But whilst the city destroyed, everyone carried off to Babylon. Jeremiah himself actually ends up in Egypt, not even with everyone else, never to see his homeland again. And what if we could, what if we could ask him if the waiting is worth it? What if we could meet him today? We could drag him up here and we could say, Jeremiah, was the waiting worth it? How would he respond? What do you think? Because I think he would respond in immense hope. In a God that he knows and believes will make everything right. We find what his response might be in Jeremiah 33. If we could look there together. He says, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. An incredible hope that Jeremiah didn't get to realize in his day, but a hope that he knew was worth waiting for. Because Jeremiah never saw this day. And that's often what waiting looks like for us. And maybe some of you are in this spot today. For we know that our good God has promised us life with him, a full life. We know that our God has said that he has plans for us and that they are good. And yet sometimes I know we wonder if we'll ever see it. Of course, every once in a while we catch a glimpse of it, don't we? We catch glimpses of the kingdom. And it reminds us that a future joy is coming It reminds us to continue praying as we did earlier, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in the meantime, we are left like Jeremiah, just waiting. But it won't be like this forever, and we know that it won't be like this forever. And our waiting builds an anticipation for what's to come. Because the one Jeremiah has hoped for has come once and will come again. And even as Christmas draws near, we practice this waiting anew, waiting for the hope that has been planned since the foundation of the earth. And for those of us who placed our hope in this coming King, those who know the grace of a saving God, those who wait for the Lord's salvation, we don't wait in vain. And we don't wait in suspicion. We've seen and tasted that the Lord is good that he will never leave his promises void, that he will never leave his, his people alone. We see his compassion, we know his mercy, and experience his love. But for now, we wait. And yet for us, the waiting isn't wasted time. Our waiting is a time for God to work in us. Our waiting is forming us into a kind of people. People who look back on God's faithfulness. People who look ahead to God as our motivation. People of hope. Who trust in a God of steadfast love. Who grants us new mercies every day. Even while we wait.
Will you pray with me?